God. He has indeed uh, opened, you know, given us the privilege, amen, to have our Bibles open to Paul's second letter, the second letter that he wrote to the flock of God in Thessalonica. He was led by the Spirit of God while he was yet in Corinth to write this letter just a few months after he had written the first letter. And again, as we were talking this morning when we were praying together as elders, it's never, brethren, a bad thing. Amen. In fact, Paul would say on many occasions that it is a good thing for me to repeat some things and to tell you again because it is safe for you. Amen. For us to remember these things and how important it is, the word of God is to us. I like how one pastor put it. He said this concerning 2 Thessalonians. It's like a second round of antibiotics for a stubborn infection. The first round, Paul's first letter, was indeed effective. And brethren, that, that letter really is so uh, needful for us today in the local church. How we behave towards one another, how we behave towards God, and how we behave towards the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us. The pastor continues, but a second round, a second letter was needed to ensure their full spiritual health. Now, as it appears, as we study this out, and we're going to see this this morning, why was that so important that Paul immediately, just months after writing the first letter, well, it appears, brethren, from our letter we're looking at this morning, that there was a forged letter being passed around. Think about this for a moment. That there was indeed a forged letter that a forged letter that was being passed around, and men were saying that it was indeed Paul and Timotheus and Silvanus or Silas who were editors of First Thessalonians. That it was from them, and it's really again important as we look at this together. Now, it never ceases to amaze me, brethren. <laughs> And again, when we look at this together this morning, we think that things really have changed from years and years ago. Brother, let me just say this. Historically, when you look just historically, Wendy, she's been reading a book to us in, in our home school at home, and it's a, it's, a, it's a story, a narrative about Governor Bradford. You're familiar with Governor Bradford and how the Lord used him, Amen. Interestingly enough, in that, which again, you think, well, we've got this kind of this grandiose thought of how things were during the days of the Puritans and how they were during the days of the pilgrims, that men weren't really evil. Oh, yes, brother. It's, it's a stunning thing. You know, the, the church, they were establishing a Bible-believing churches. That's what they were doing, Governor Bradford and the rest of them, right? Well, some men snuck in undercover. It's an amazing thing. They actually snuck in and, and they started conspiring together. And Governor Bradford recognizes and said, what are these two men doing? They were pretending to be Christians. They were actually from the Church of England. And they were writing some things, some letters. And uh, Governor Bradford noticed that they had hauled these, this clump of letters out onto the ship to send it back to, back to England. And he went around and he intercepted it. And here to find out, these two men were subverting all of the work that they were doing. Think of that for a moment, brethren. And we see this here in this letter, that there were indeed imposters who were sending letters that were supposedly, allegedly sent out by Paul. And again, brethren, I want us to see this. Look here as we look at our text together. Look at chapter 2, verse number 2. Again, he addresses this three times. I want you to see this. They, uh, that they be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us. Do you see that there again? There were letters being passed around. You remember how First Thessalonians closed? 
That's how they, brethren, that's how they had their Bibles back in those days. They were not fortunate like you and I to have all 66 books in the canon. They would simply, uh, they would, uh, Paul would write the letter, it would get dictated out, and then they would read it to the congregation, and then Paul would say, send that letter to the next church. And when they're done with that letter, you read that letter. This is how it was, the word of God was passed around in those days. Paul is saying here, don't be soon shaken, don't be moved. There is no other letter that has been sent by us that would teach something that would be unholy. Listen to what it says. Nor by letter as from us that the day of Christ is at hand. He's been teaching through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, all about the second coming of Christ. This is what he's been doing. And so someone had written and tried to subvert Paul and his teachings there, and Timotheus and, and Silas, their teaching concerning the second coming. Paul said, don't even. It, you know, it'd be like us dragging in here the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody ever read that? I've read it. The little the Laodicean letter. I've read these letters that are outside of Scripture. Now, they're not in Scripture because they contradict or they teach something that isn't correct. That's why it's not in. That's why Paul's warning the brethren here, hey, listen, don't read that letter. Don't pay any attention to that letter. They're trying to subvert the gospel of Christ with that letter. Look here again. He addresses it in verse 15 of chapter 2. Look there if you would. Chapter 2 of verse number 15. Look what Paul tells them. Again, a church where, there's, where they were always, there was no condemnation ever said of this church. One of the only churches in all of the biblical letters that we see where there's no condemnation. Paul was praising them for their growth and for the things that they were doing. Look what he says there, if you would, in verse number 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Do you see that again? There it is again. He separates that one that's been floating around, the, the false doctrine that's been floating around. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse number 14. He addresses it again. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, you see that again? He's separating that out. This thing is, is moving around. It's causing division in the church and unholy doctrines being taught in the church. Paul says if, 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 if they don't listen to this epistle, look what it says. Note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. So again, brethren, this subversiveness, it's just amazing to me. And those of us who have been pastors for a while and been preachers for a while, believe you me, we've experienced it. And it's like you just, you're amazed and you say, how can this be? How can this keep happening? But then you go in history and you look at scripture and you look at the Puritans, you look at the pilgrims, you look at what's taken. Men have not changed. It is the same today as it is back then. And even in inspired holy writ, we see where this kind of unholy thing was going on. Second Thessalonians, as we can see, and as we know here, brother, is indeed shorter. But it's very similar in tone, and this is the thing, right? So First Thessalonians, a couple months later, Paul writes, First uh, Thessalonians, then a couple months later, he sends this second letter. It's very similar in tone, although there are some differences. From a macro view, we remember, brethren, from a macro view of First Thessalonians, it teaches the imminent return of Christ in all five chapters, as I've said. Here, from a micro view, when you actually go down in a micro view of 2 Thessalonians, it explains events that will indeed take place before the second coming of Christ. Now, this morning, this is not what we're going to delve into, but in chapter 2, he really delves into that. So we have a micro view. He's, if you will, he gives a greater detail concerning the things of the second coming of Christ. Same event, more details. Amen, which is always a good thing to have. Now look what Paul does here 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at the first three verses. Again, he opens it very familiarly as he did the first letter. And I want you to see this. Paul and Silvanus, that's Latin for Silas, and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember from the first one, again, he's, he's, giving, he's giving us here the Christian's address, if you will. They're in Christ. They're saved. They've been called out by God. They've been regenerated. They've, they've been put into the family of God. And he's reminding them, this again is our address. If you're saved this morning, brethren, you are indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have indeed been imputed with his righteousness, his blood. As we sang this morning, there's power in the blood. It has been, if you will, imputed, accredited to your account. And we're going to see that's why they were worthy. That's why they were counted worthy. We're going to see that here this morning. Look what he says there in verse 2. Grace unto you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second repeating now of the address. The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, it is fitting that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. And again, a very familiar theme from the first letter. We looked at that and we saw that. Paul says here again that the Lord's grace, his unmerited favor, from which the fountain of peace, again, grace and peace, we see this a lot as Paul addresses the church, grace and peace. Grace, first of all, is God's unmerited favor. Peace comes and flows from the fountain of the Father and the Son, his finished work. This is what he's saying. Again, he's addressing Christians. Amen? That word peace literally means the end of enmity, hostility, the end of bad blood between God and his people. So he's saying and addressing them, we are all one in Christ. We've been saved. We've been gathered together under the, under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's simply reminding them. It is indeed an opening prayer of thankfulness to God. Again, brethren, for their ever-growing faith in the Father and their abounding Christ-like love towards one another. And again, this is a theme. I want us to see this again because it comes into play. Uh, Wendy and I were just, just talking. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? You can love someone, well, you think you can love someone from a distance, amen? But when you get to know them, when they come into the church and you rub up against them and they rub up against you and they see your faults and you see their faults, that's really what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about me loving you from a distance. He's talking about when I get close to you, when I see some of the things in you and you see some of the things in me, we forgive one another. And we're at peace through the Lord Jesus Christ in that. Amen? And it's unfortunate that that just doesn't happen much anymore. It's very unfortunate. I want you to see this. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, the idea here, this growing Christ-like love towards one another. Look there, if you would, at verse number 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, that so you should abound more and more. Remember, we looked at that. This is the idea. This is the growing Christian, that you abound more and more in these things. Look at verses 9 and 10. Look there, if you would, quickly. But as touching brotherly love... You need not that I read unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren, which are all in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. There it is again. There's the growing faith in the Father. There's the growing work amongst each other that we are to do to grow more and more. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible speaks of faith in many different ways. 
It is an interesting thing. I want us to look at this again because as we analyze Scripture, we are all at different places in our walk with Christ. Some of us are more mature. Some of us are infants yet. Some of us are in the middle somewhere. And I want you to see what happens. So Paul's talking about this ever-growing faith. I want you to see how the Bible describes it for us because it'll describe me and you very clearly. Turn with me, if you would, first of all, to Luke chapter 7. Let's just look at this together. This growing faith. Look at Luke chapter 7. I just want to point this out to us because often we think, oh, this guy or that guy or that, oh, she, you know, he's way up there in the faith. He's this and that. Well, you haven't always been in that place. Look at Luke chapter 7. In fact, the Lord Jesus uses some terminology concerning faith that I want us to see here. Luke chapter 7. Look there, if you would, at verse number 6. Luke chapter 7, look at verse number 6. Again, this has to do with the centurion's servant who the Lord heals. And I want you to see what Jesus says. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But I say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Uh, but, but say in a word, my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to that unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so what? So great faith in all of Israel. So there are some who have great faith. I mean, we see this in Scripture. Man, this is what he's talking about. This is what Paul's encouraging them to do, to grow in your faith. So we see great faith. Look at Luke chapter 12. There are some who have great faith. How about Luke chapter 12? Maybe some of us this morning are sitting here, and this is where we're at. This is not a condemnation. This is just what the Bible and how it describes it for us. Look at Luke chapter 12. First, great faith like the centurion. Look there at Luke chapter 12. Look at verse number 22. Look here what the Bible says. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what shall be put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? This is a good text for the animal rights freaks. Okay, yeah, we have more value than the animals do, okay? God has put us way above that. Look what it says in verse 25. And which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If, that, if ye then be not able to do that thing, which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies how they grow, and they toil not and spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God then so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe ye? You, O ye of what? Little faith. We have great faith. We have little faith. We have all manner of, of these things in Scripture that we see here. This is what Paul is addressing. No matter where you're at, your faith should indeed keep growing. Well, when you have little faith, the only way to have more faith is for God to increase your faith. Amen? This is how it works. And look at here, Luke. Again, just a couple of, of Scriptures. Look at Luke chapter 17. Again, we see here, you have little faith. Then in Luke chapter 17, again, this is what Paul is saying to us. 
He's telling us that amongst the brethren, there are many who have these different levels of faith, if you will. Look at Luke chapter 17. Look at verse number 3. Look there, if you would, for just a moment. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times a day, and seven times a day turned again unto thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, what? Increase our faith. So in other words, they're at a level where they need the Lord to increase their faith. So we got great faith, we got little faith, we got increasing faith. And finally, one more that the Bible speaks of is a strong faith. I want you to see this. Look at Romans chapter 4. Just again, this great orator, this great man of God, who is referenced here in Romans chapter 4, of course, is Abraham. And again, we all pray we have the faith of Abraham. Think of that for a moment. I don't have time to delve into that, but you think about what God told him and what he believed and how many years it was. Anybody remember when God told him you're going to have a son? Anybody remember how long Abraham waited? In fact, his wife kind of got in the way, didn't she? She said, here you go. Why don't you just go over here and, you know, and, and, and have a baby with this woman over here? And God said, no, Ishmael's not in the lineage. Isaac's going to be 25 years he waited. <laughs> God promised him, and then we're, we're getting a report here. Brother, when was the last time you ever waited 25 years or any of us for anything? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. We are a snap. We just want it now. But here, Abraham, who the Bible says has strong faith, is one who patiently waited concerning the work of God. Look there in chapter 4. Look at verse number 16, if you will. Look there. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace, and the end of the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but also that which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, uh, uh, I have made thee a father of many nations before him uh, whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which are not as though they were. Look at verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope. Again, his faith and was, trust was completely in what God was doing. That he might become the father of many nations according to that which is spoken. So shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. They were... Uh, we would say in our vernacular today, they were old fogies. They were well along in years, even though, what, Wendy, I was 47 and you were 45 when we had our last biological child, but still, nothing like this. Look what it says there in verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving what? Glory to God. So again, we see this as we traverse through scriptures. We see those who are strong in faith, those who are weak in faith, those who need to have their faith increased. And again, this is all the work of the church as they gather together. These brethren were all at different levels concerning these things. Let me just say this. Every Christian has the same quality of saving faith. In other words, the meritorious work of Christ that's given to you. We all have the same quality of faith. We're not better I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We have the same quality because it is the meritorious work that's been imputed to us, but not the same quantity of exercised faith. 
And again, this is it, brethren. This is what we're seeing. This is what Paul is saying to them. You gather together and you grow exceedingly more and more and more in your faith. It's kind of like we were talking this morning. Some people really do believe that they've arrived. I, I know some personally who think that the, the gathering of the saints is not important anymore. Wednesday evening is not important anymore. Gathering for prayer isn't important anymore because I have arrived. No, you haven't. We never will. Never. We are to continually grow in our faith. This is what Paul is saying. In fact, if you look there, 2 Thessalonians, look at chapter, uh, chapter 1. Look at verses 11 and 12. He references this again, this work of faith. 2 Thessalonians, look there if you would, verses 11 and 12. This is uh, going to be an undertaking to get this done today. Look there at verses 11 and 12. We'll be back here because we're going to find out why we're counted worthy. But look verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill the pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. There it is right there. Again, this is what he's talking about. Grow in this faith. Grow in this power. And it's by the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, in which one indeed grows in the Lord. Now look there if you would. Again, this is what's so amazing about Scripture. It's generally the opposite of what we think or what the world thinks. When you read Scripture, you go, well, it's the opposite of what would normally make sense to us. Amen? Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Look there if you would. So he, he's speaking of their great love and their charity towards one another. Then he says this, verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Look at verse 5. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. One, that ye may, uh, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Two, for which ye also suffer. Verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. So the Apostle Paul here is saying to them, just as their faith towards the Father, just as their love towards one another abounded together, so too had their old friends, persecution and troubles, trotted along right beside them. Amen? So as their faith increased, so too did the persecution and tribulation. This is what Paul's saying. They simply just trotted along. Now, contrary to what we think, as I said, or what we believe, what the world thinks, Paul says that their response to their tribulations and to their troubles indeed is, uh, if you will, the evidence that the gospel of Christ is indeed alive and well and working in their lives. You see the opposite of how we would look at that? We want things smooth. We want things just to go smoothly. And as soon as we think something isn't quite going smoothly, we question whether or not God loves us. We question whether or not this or that. It's an amazing thing. And yet Paul says here that the evidence that you are indeed a Christian, that you are indeed the gospel is working, is indeed that you are being persecuted for it. Think of that for a moment. We, we can't comprehend that very well can we? In fact, he says that there in verse 5. Look what he says. Verse, uh, chapter 1, look at verse number 5. It is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. What does that mean? Well, manifest token literally means a clear indicator. It's plain and open. 
for the eyes to see and the understanding to understand. It's clear as day. We would say that's clear as a bell that because of the persecution, you're being persecuted for the gospel. You're being persecuted for the church. You're being persecuted for the kingdom of God. And it's clear. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. And that's what he's saying to them, this manifest token. It's visible to the eye and obvious to our understanding. And we look at this again. This is something he talked about in 1 Thessalonians. Persecution, tribulations. Why? Because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have preached the gospel in an area that's filled with pagans and everything else. And they're not going to have it. And we again see this as they have trotted alongside them. As their faith has grown, as their love for one another has grown, so too has these uh, tribulations and these troubles, they have indeed trotted alongside them. In fact, we really get the idea, and again, I want you to see this idea of token of manifestation. <laughs> if someone, well, let me see, this is kind of a lame kind of a thing to think about, it's, but there's some truth and reality to it. If at your workplace, could someone condemn you for being a Christian? Can someone look at you and go, yep, that person, there's something different about that person. They, they're, they, they're talking about the gospel. They're talking about Christ. They're talking about holy things. Not, and I'm not saying we walk around all the time and do that, but the reality of it is when you have been out in the world, does the world look at you and go, we know he's or her, she's a Christian. We know that. That means to be made manifest. It means to be clear to the understanding to people who Isaac and I both know. When we are out working, they all know. They all know we're Christians. They know that. Because God opened, I'm not right, I'm just saying, do they know? Does the world know it? Howard's people, where he works, knows it. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Manifest. Look at Romans chapter 1. I want you to see this again. This idea of manifesting. This idea of being seen and with eyes and understanding. And we see it here in judgment, and we also see it in righteousness and in good in the scriptures. Look at Romans chapter 1. A very hymn from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Brethren, all the unbelievers are without excuse. You know why? Because God has clearly revealed it to them and he has manifested it to them that he is God. If they believe and trust in him, then amen. The gospel then is he sends it out. He sends the gospel out and they believe and trust in that because God has indeed manifested that to them. Look at 1 John. Again, this, is, this has to do with wrath. Look at 1 John. This has to do with salvation. Look here, if you would, 1 John. Look at chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, again, just the idea of manifesting, a manifest token, a reality open and visible to the eye, obvious to our understanding. Look there, if you would, at verse number 5. I want us to see again, brethren, the separation, the segregation, the, if you will, they and we. I want you to see this as he begins in verse number 5. Look there. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. So in other words, he's immediately separating who? Who's he separating? The sheep and the goats, the believers and the non-believers. He's saying they and we. They are of the world. We are of God himself. He that knoweth God heareth us. 
He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now verse number 7, of course, tells us that God is the source of love. You'll see the language that's used here. First he says he's the source of love. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He's the source. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Look at verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So God is what? His very nature is love. He's the source of love, biblical love. He's, his nature is to love. It's an amazing thing. In fact, what does it say here? So he's the source. He's the nature of it. What does he say? Look at verse 9. And this was manifested the love of God. So again, he's the source of it. He's the very beginning of it. And what does he do? He then manifests that love towards his people. How? Look at verse number 9. And this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he what? loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. That's how God manifested his love towards his people. He didn't just say it. He didn't just, you know, hey, I think I love those guys. No, no. Because he is the source, because he is love itself, he then manifested that out to his people through the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, who shed his blood for the sinners, who died and was raised again from the dead. This is the idea that Paul is saying. Hey, brethren, we know that you're being persecuted in tribulation because it is manifested. They are seeing that it is the gospel. They are seeing that it is the church of Christ for which the kingdom of God for which you're being persecuted. Now look what he says there. Not only that, look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look there what he says. So he lays this out there. And then he says this. <laughs> and again, this again funnels our religious affections to the work of God in all of this. This is a thing that can never be lost on us. We must never be lost in this ever. The work of God in this. It's an amazing thing. Now look there if you would. Look at verse number 5 which is manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also ye suffer. Now, brethren, to be counted worthy, it's an important thing that Paul says here, okay? To be counted worthy is not to be seen as worthy, but reckoned as worthy. Again, this is important as Paul is preaching to them. Not that we're seen as worthy, because, brethren, we are not worthy except that we are made worthy by who? By the work of God. And so this is the idea here, that it's reckoned to them. Amen? It is something, if you will, that has to be declared. They've been declared worthy at a specific moment in time. Paul says, you've been declared worthy. It is a judicial statement. It's very close, brethren, to when one is justified by God. You understand what that means. It's a one-time event. It is not something you do. It is something God says to you. That God, when he imputes his, his son's righteousness, his blood to you, his work, that God then says, you are what? You are justified. It's a one-time event. It never happens again. You're justified by the work. It's very similar here to what he's saying, is that it's a one-time event. You've been counted worthy because I have justified you not of your own work, not of anything you've done, nothing. It is all based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A judicial statement. It is God's righteous judgment, listen, 
concerning the brethren here. It is a righteous judgment. His judgment that distinguished and divided them from others. A judgment, listen, brethren, the judgment that's made here is only made in all of Scripture concerning one's salvation and the work of the Father in that. Do you realize that? That's why this is unique. That's why Paul said this. This is what he said. Hey, you are counted worthy, not because you're good, but because it's tied directly to the salvation that the Father has bestowed upon us and upon you. It is so important. Again, people confuse this thing. They get it all confused. It's like anything else. One is worthy. When the Bible speaks of Job as one who is righteous, one who is good, one who eschews evil, what does that mean? That he's worthy. Yes, he's worthy because God made him worthy. He imputed his righteousness to him. This is what Paul is talking about. That word count there. Look at verse 11 again. This is the idea. Look at verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling. That's the idea right there. It is something that he has said that he is justifying by him speaking it in a legal term. It really is, again, and as I said, it's only said of those, only by God himself, concerning salvation and the work that he did in your life. In fact, there's a couple of examples here, and I know that this can get kind of long, but I want you to see that. Look at Luke chapter 20. The Lord uses this terminology, and again, the only time in Scripture where this is used by God is having to do with one's salvation. The, the, theolo- the Thessalonians are counted worthy because of what God has done, and we've already looked at that. It's just such an amazing thing to me when we consider this, when we look at the work that God does. Look at Luke chapter 20. The Lord Jesus here uses this terminology, and I want you to see this. Again, only by God concerning one's salvation. Look there, if you would, at verse number 33. You remember the Lord has just been, he's been questioned. This brother dies and Mary, this brother dies and this brother dies. So he's talking about marriage here. What happens? Because according to the Jewish law, that woman then was to be turned over to the brother. Well, that brother dies, and this brother dies, and that's, that's how it was. This is what they did. And then he says this in verse 33. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Verse 34. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which will, shall be accounted worthy, there it is, there's the terminology, there's Jesus himself using the same terminology. Who is it that's counted worthy? Look what the Bible says, to obtain that world, the resurrection, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto angels, and are what? The children of God. Do you see that there again? It's only used in that terminology. They are accounted worthy because they are who? Children of God who has been saved, who's been drawn, who's been regenerated, and who's been saved by God. This is what Paul is saying. This is why it's so important. Being the children of the resurrection. In fact, Jesus uses it in John chapter 3. I want you to see, again, this separation. There is a separation. Look at John chapter 3. Just, we'll go through this quickly. Look here again, Jesus himself speaking here in John chapter 3. Again, speaking about the love of God, that God so loved the world that he gave. There it is, a manifestation of his son to sinners. And the Bible says there, verse number 17, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now verse 19, that word condemning really is the idea of making a judgment, the kind of judgment that I'm talking about, the kind that Paul's talking about, the kind of judgment that God makes. This is God judging and saying, the reason people go to hell, the reason they are lost, the reason they are condemned is because of God's judgment right here. Look at verse 19. And this is the condemnation, the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Look at verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light and neither cometh to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. Look at verse 21. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be what? May be made manifest. There it is again, the idea that they were wrought in God. So again, we see this idea. This is what Paul is saying in the text. In Romans chapter 4, I'll just give you the verse, verses 4 through 11. Again, we see the idea here of being counted worthy, being counted, given to your account. Romans chapter 4, we remember that, if you will, imputed by God. Brethren, God's righteous judgment that we're looking at here concerning the brother at Thessalonica is a judgment, again, that distinguishes and divided them from others. Literally a, diver a division, if you will, a distinguishing mark, if you will, between, as we said, between the sheep and the goats, which is exactly, brethren, which is precisely, if you look at the context, this is what the context is all about. Because where do we go next? Where does Paul take us after he lays out this distinguishing marks, this division, if you will, the work of God, you've been counted worthy. It's precisely where he takes us in the text. He goes from speaking this way to now he's going to turn his attention. And again, we see the division between the saved and the lost. We see, we see what happens in the text to the saved and what happens to the lost. This is precisely where he takes us. And I want us just to look there together. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 6 and 7. Precisely, contextually, beautifully flowing right along with the text. No confusion, no misunderstanding. This is what he's talking about, this judgment. Look there, if you would, at verse, verses 6 and 7. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. It never changes. It's like the law of gravity. It's like the law that God has put in place. Whatever you sow, there you're going to reap. And this is what he is saying. Those who have been petulant towards God, those who have hated God, those who have not trusted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to reap what they sow. In fact, God's going to give them. He's going to recompense them, he says. And he encourages the brothers. God is going to recompense. Listen, that means to require, to repay, to return an equivalent tribulation for trouble. This is what Paul just told him. Brothers, listen, let me encourage you. Although the persecutors are doing this thing now, there's coming a day when God will indeed repay them for what they are doing. It isn't now, but it is in the future. And this is why he brings in, again, we're going to talk for just a moment, the second coming of Christ. He, he says, this is our rest. This is when we begin to sit down. This is when we release and let go of these troubles and these tribulations. It's when the Lord Jesus comes again. God will indeed give back to the persecutors of his elect the same kind of trouble they have given his people. 
Therefore, Paul says, come and rest with us for just a little while there when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Now, that word rest is important to us. I keep telling Wendell, the older I get, the more tired I get. And it seems like the more rest I get, the more tired I get. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I mean, it just seems that way. That's not the rest he's talking about, brethren. The rest here has to do, it literally means to lose, to relax, to rest from tribulation and trouble, not work. Remember? Remember what Paul had to do? Paul had to address the brethren because they stopped working. Remember that? That's not what we're talking about. He's talking about the rest we will receive when the Lord Jesus himself comes. I want you to see this. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Again, since we're moving into the second coming, since we're moving into speaking of tribulations and troubles, look here what the author of Revelation, John himself, said. He, in fact, reminds us of this. And again, this is something that is important for us to grasp and get a hold of. Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse number 9 there, as soon as I, my pages are sticking together. Look at verse number 9. Listen to the language that's used here. Again, these martyrs are in heaven. Verse number 9, he says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Verse 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them, listen, that they should rest yet a little season. Do you see where the rest comes? They've been martyred. They've been slain for their testimony. The rest here that is being spoken of, like Paul, he's encouraging them. Let me remind you, Christ is coming again. He's going to avenge. He's going to come with his, with his saints. And he's going to bring vengeance on these things. And then we will receive our rest. This is exactly what John is saying here. John the Revelator says, that they should rest yet a little season. Listen. And tell their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The rest that, again, contextually he's talking about is the rest that the believer will get when the Lord Jesus comes. When he brings, if you will, this recompense that we're talking about. Paul says there and reminds them and gives a good description of his coming. Again, we're not going to hit on this. I just want to read this so it's in context for us. Look back there at 1 Thessalonians again or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look there, if you would, at verses uh, 7, 8, 9 again. Again, this trouble, this tribulation, this recompense, he will repay for what they've done. Verse number 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Listen to verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, brethren, I don't know about you, when I read these kind of verses, as I said, when I preach through Revelation, there are some verses that you read, and it just absolutely, it makes your hair stand up on end to understand that those who are lost, when he comes, this is what's going to happen. Vengeance, a flaming fire. He's going to come with his saints and bring this judgment upon them, in fact, God is just, and this is the thing that we must always remember, brethren, as we bring this to a close. God is just. Will not the God of all the earth do what? Right. Genesis 38. Yes, he will. God is just. He will indeed be just to those who sow trouble. They will reap the trouble. 
He will give relief to you and I who are troubled as well, but this relief will come in the future. Paul says this will happen when the Lord Jesus comes. And again, this is what he's saying. When he's revealed, when he's made manifest. Again, that's the terminology that's used. When, when your eyes see it, when your senses feel it, we will all know when he's coming. Amen? There's no question about that. He will be uncovered from heaven. He will punish. He will indeed bring to justice those who do not believe the gospel. Again, the reaping and sowing. This is what happens. They will experience... If they continue to not believe the gospel, they will indeed experience everlasting destruction. That's what Paul just said. Think about that for a moment, brethren. There are many right now, I was thinking of some people I know who have passed away in my own high school friends, people that I know who are not Christians. They are not Christians. How long they have now been where they are. Complete destruction from the presence of God. Think of that for a moment, brethren, what that means. It is indeed a prolonged, unending ruin. It really is. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if I'll just give you the text, you remember that this is what Paul said there, speaking again of the second coming of Christ, saying to them that when they say what? Peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. This is the same idea. This is the same exact theology. The same thing. He's giving them a booster shot concerning Christ's second coming again. So there's no confusion concerning what will, what's taking place. Jude 13, 14, 15, and 16 speaks of this darkness, speaks of these, these people, their ungodliness. And that's all been reserved for them. However, Paul again making distinction as we bring this to a close. In verse number 10, we see the greatest distinction of all. Look at verse number 10. He says, those who reject the gospel, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Look at verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his what? Saints, those who are true believers, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be admired in all them that believe. Listen. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What a difference. What a difference the saint of God is going to experience versus what those who have rejected the gospel are going to experience. And again, you read these texts. You think about what's happening to them now as we speak. As we speak. Brethren, it should definitely bring our little hairs, our gospel hairs on the back of our heads to a stand-up. We should stand up and say, yes, Lord, I know. I know the importance of what's being said. One pastor put it this way. The lost will not cease to exist, but will experience forever a life of uselessness, hopelessness, emptiness, and meaninglessness with no value, completely separated from God. That's just one a few distinctions. There's also, right, we know in Luke how the rich man and Jesus described it for us. There's suffering and pain and all these things, and yet, think of that for a moment, being separated from God. He concluded, this will pass into a night on which no morning dawns. When one dies outside of Christ, this is what awaits them. This is what awaits those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. 
That's why Paul continually is encouraging us, brethren, to believe the Bible, believe what God says, trust in what he says, and preach and teach faithfully what he says. It's important. Thomas Jefferson, I'm sure you're familiar with him. All of us should be. Thomas Jefferson had a redacted Bible. <laughs> this is where we must be careful. You know, all our founding fathers weren't Christians. You understand that, right? There were deists. There was all kinds of things. Ben Franklin was a deist. And this isn't amazing. When you think about it, though, just not to get sidetracked, but think about this for a moment, how God would use Christians, and he would use these deists, and he'd use somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who had a redacted Bible. And you know what he redacted out of his Bible? Everything that was, uh, if you will, let me use the word right, miraculous. Everything that was unbelievable to the human mind. Think of this for a moment. A redacted Bible. The gospel for him was merely a morality tale, a cut and pasted truth and authority. Brethren, it must not be. If you're a Bible-believing Christian today, we cannot have cut and pasted authority. We must believe what Paul is saying, what John wrote, John the Revelator. We must believe what Jesus said, what Peter said, what all these great men said concerning when one dies outside of Christ. We've been given two great gifts by God. All of us sitting here this morning, well, this afternoon now, all of us sitting here this afternoon can remember or think about when God was drawing you to Christ. There was someone, somebody, whom God used to bring you to Christ, one way or another. Mine particularly was a man who believed wholeheartedly in the Bible. Authoritative, what it says it's true. He grilled that in my head. And he would leave, he'd, he'd leave the Bible and say, Mike, read this, read this, read this. This is what God says. This is our authority. This is true. And I was in ninth grade sitting at my buddy's house. We were Mountain Dew addicts. I mean, we drank Mountain Dew like a madman. And I remember sitting in his basement, and I, his mom's Bible, I got it out. We started, I started reading out loud the book of Revelation to him. And, okay, children, plug your ears. All right. I was a massive smoker of Marlboro menthols back in those days. I mean, cools, Marlboro menthols. They were the choice. And I was reading, drinking that Mountain Dew, and we're, it's 8 in the morning. And I'm reading it out loud to him. I say, Troy, listen to what God is saying. And, and you just move. God was using that to move me to help me to see and realize that what God says is true. And when I met this man, and he just held the Bible in such high esteem, and he put the word of God out there, you know why? Because he knows. He knows like I know, even for my children. We sat and read last night together. He knows that it is the power. He knew that. We must know that. We must not be like Thomas Jefferson and clip parts out we don't like and the miraculous we're going to do away with. No, brethren, we preach it right and faithfully and truthfully. And you know what God does? He does his work. Mm-hmm. He saves that man 
that woman, that child, not through what we've done, but through how we view things and what we do concerning the scriptures. That's what he uses, the power of the word of God. That's what Paul is saying. No clip art here. Was faithful and true. A true believer, as we close, trusts and believes all that the sacred scriptures. And we must march on telling and warning everyone of its glorious truths, of the reality here that Paul said, that those who are outside of Christ face God's eternal judgment, his destruction, if you will. Amen? Let's pray together this morning as we close. Father, we, we know how glorious your word is. We are so thankful and grateful that you would give it to us. These 66 books that are indeed the very words of God himself. They never change. Men have tried to change it, but you have indeed preserved it. They never change, the meaning does not change, and the power never lessens. As we have seen, even from our brother Paul and the editors of these letters, Timotheus and Silas, we've seen the cunning, slighting hands of men who were circulating a forged letter. Think of that for a moment. Who were trying to subvert the Apostle Paul's teachings and the truth of Scripture, that has not changed. We saw it even in the 1600s, the 17, 18, all the way up to our day. All of us who are pastors have seen it, and yet we're stunned by it, and yet we, we should be encouraged by what we've seen and heard today. Because indeed you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we must continue to proclaim faithfully and truthfully your word, to all the world, to those who are lost, that they might not go to hell, that place which Jesus told us about and spoke more about than heaven, actually. That there is indeed flames, and yet they can see. And when we look at that text in Luke, we see that the rich man has all of his faculties. He could talk. He could see. He could hear. Now, brethren, think of this for a moment. He could even remember. Remember. Jesus said, remember in your day. Remember. He could remember. People in hell right now remember sitting and hearing the gospel preached. They remember that. They're all fully intact and yet closed out in destruction from the presence of God. Father, will you bring these realities to us? Help us to keep it deep down in our heart that it will drive us by the power of the Spirit to be faithful men and women, even the children here who are saved, to your word and to you and to your work. Father, we love you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.